This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today we'll talk about Texas politics and the coming showdown there between populist Democrats and establishment Democrats. But first, Trump killed the Iran nuclear deal. Now what? Trump Watch starts right now. For comment, we turn to Michael Clare. He's the nation's defense correspondent, and he's also professor of peace and world security studies at Hampshire College. He's written 14 books on international energy and security affairs, including, most recently, The Race for What's Left. Michael Clare, welcome to the program. Hope I could be help on this issue. This is big. How big is this? You know, there is some talk that Europe could still maintain the, its deal with Iran and that Trump would, over the long term, renegotiate this in some way. What do you think? No, I don't think there's really a happy outcome from this. I don't see some way in which Europe can rescue the nuclear deal, the Iran nuclear deal, uh, which is formally known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA for listeners. I, I don't think that that's possible. Uh, Trump says that he wants to see a clean slate. New negotiations begin with the Iranians for a totally new deal. I don't think that's in the cards at all. Uh, I, I think that we're going to see tough sanctions on Iran, and if the Iranians move to restart their nuclear enrichment program, the next step is war. I found a fascinating piece in the Washington Post describing how successful the Iran nuclear agreement has been over the last three years. The U.N. nuclear agency has a monitoring station outside of Vienna where they get live video from inside Iran's once-secret uranium enrichment plants. They receive an unbroken stream of data delivered by cameras and remote sensors. Every week, scientists analyze dust samples that are collected from across Iran, looking for minute particles that could reveal possible cheating. There are U.N. inspection teams on the ground in Iran who work every day of the year, checking and rechecking the nuclear facilities there investigating tips that something might be going on. And all of this, I think there is pretty much unanimous agreement among people who know about it. All of this has been very successful in stopping Iranian nuclear uh, enrichment. That, that is absolutely correct. And it's not just the International Atomic Energy Agency inspectors, the UN, Europeans. It's the top American intelligence officials as well. Mike Pompeo, Dan Coates, the, uh, the director of national intelligence, have testified as recently as last month that, as so far as they know, Iran is in full compliance with the JCPOA. Full compliance. There's no evidence whatsoever of Iranian cheating on the deal. How unusual is this degree of scrutiny of Iran's uh, program in our recent history? Oh, this is by far the most intrusive uh, inspection regime ever mounted 
by the international community. By far, there's never been anything this intrusive in, in terms of the number of inspections, the number of inspectors, the constant intrusion into Iran's facilities and so on. There's nothing like it, been nothing like it before. Now, Donald Trump complains that Iran is engaged in other activities that he finds offensive, like ballistic missile testing, like uh, supporting Hezbollah and the Houthis in Yemen and so on. And the Europeans and others also object to those activities, but those are not covered by the deal that the United States signed. So he can't say that those are, in fact, infractions of the of the deal. It seems like the effect of Trump's announcement within Iran will inevitably strengthen the hardliners who want to restart the nuclear program and remove the surveillance regime. How likely do you think that is, and how soon do you think that might happen? Now, that's a little bit hard to determine because of the nature of internal politics within Iran and how the uh, supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, uh, chooses to respond to this situation. It would make sense for the Iranians to continue to abide by the agreement and to work with the Europeans and isolate the United States, to portray the United States as the bad guy and create dissension between the U.S., and, the, and its European allies over this issue, and not to rush into to enriching uranium. And on the other hand, there are forces within Iran who feel that the deal never worked to Iran's advantage because the U.S. kept up economic pressure on Iran throughout this period, and so they never received the economic benefit they were led to believe they were going to receive. And so the hardliners may say, let's just go back into enriching uranium because that's to our advantage. How that will play out is impossible to say. And this agreement was, let me just underline here, not an agreement between the United States and Iran. It was an international agreement that involved not only Europe, but also Russia and China. I guess we should ask what Russia and China are likely to do here. Russia and China are going to say without question that the United States violated an agreement, was the rogue state, to use a yes. term that, that the U.S. once popularized. The U.S. is a rogue state defying international norms, scuttled a international agreement that was beneficial to the world community. That's what they're going to say. They're not going to be part of any effort to renegotiate that treaty. And inevitably, we have to talk about Israel. Israel sees Iran as its, uh, you know, primary enemy in the in the region. Uh, this will undoubtedly strengthen the hardliners within Israel. What can you tell us about that situation? Now, now, when we talk about Israel, in this case, you have to narrow it down to one person, Benjamin. Netanyahu, who has made it a personal crusade to sabotage the Iran nuclear deal, and he has spent the past 
uh, how many years trying to do that? He came before Congress in 2015 and tried to sabotage the deal, and he's been working at that ever since. So he certainly is going to be thrilled, and I'm sure he had played a hand in persuading Mr. Trump to do that. In fact, uh, Trump uh, referred to the intelligence cage that uh, Netanyahu uh, unveiled a few days ago, which supposedly claimed that uh, the Iranians were secretly pursuing a nuclear weapon uh, long after they uh, had agreed to stop any such activities. Um, the Europeans say there is nothing new in all of this, that, that Iran had stopped that long ago, and that in any case, the, the agreement uh, shut down anything they were doing, so it's irrelevant. Nonetheless, Trump referred to these materials that Netanyahu revealed a week ago. So we're really talking about Netanyahu, and I think he's thrilled by all of this. Uh, however... This is going to lead Israel on a collision course with Iran and possibly war, and I'm not sure everyone in Israel is so thrilled about that. <laughs> I think you're right. You said it was French President Macron who said this could lead to war. I wonder how. Wonder what you if you have any comment on that. Well, I said uh, at the outset that uh, really the only option left. For Trump is war, and he certainly threatened that in his comments in announcing the withdrawal from the agreement. He he said that if if Iran moved in the direction of acquiring nuclear weapons, they would suffer unbearable consequences for that. So there's no question that he has war on his mind, and I I think if. Iran does do something that he can justifiably claim as a cause, a, a legitimate cause for attack, he will certainly order American forces to do so. So, you know, I don't want to say we're three months away, six months away, nine months away, but we're now on a path towards war. Iran is a big country. How substantial is their military? What kind of military capabilities do they have at this point? Well, Iran is not capable of defeating the United States in warfare. There's no question about that. It, but it is capable of putting up a tough fight. And I, I think its citizens will rally to any at attack by foreign powers. So I, I think the resistance will be fierce. What you have to worry about in the case of an attack on Iran is that it has allies throughout the region yeah. who are capable of great mischief. It has allies in the, in the case of Hezbollah. And I don't believe that the conflict that might erupt will just involve the United States and Iran if a conflict erupts. I think it will involve Israel. And Israel is likely to attack Iranian outposts in Syria. And that could spark Hezbollah, which has a huge trove of missiles, to attack cities in Israel. So this conflict could spread throughout the region. 
there are also Iranian-armed Shiite militias in Iraq in the proximity to American forces in Iraq that could also come under attack. So throughout the region, there are Iranian armed forces that are capable of inflicting great mischief and harm on American forces, on American allies. Once you launch a war, once you start a war, as Clausewitz once said, uh, famously said, you, you lose control of what happens. The fog of war takes over. That's what worries me about this. The point really that should be made about all of this, I should be clear, is that President Trump has no plan B in tearing up the Iran nuclear deal. He, he said, you know, somehow we're going to force the Iranians to come back to the table and make a better deal. But that's utter nonsense. The Europeans say that there's no path to that possibility, and the Iranians say there's no path to that, and certainly Russia and China uh, would not agree to such a, such a path. So really, uh, by tearing up the agreement, I can't see any other plan uh, any other pathway other than conflict. That's really the, path, the, the point that needs to be made here. Michael Clare, he writes about Iran and the United States for Tom Dispatch and The Nation. Michael, thanks so much for talking with us today. Sure thing. It's been a pleasure, even though this is a very troubling topic. <laughs> It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk about Texas politics and the coming showdown there between populist Democrats and establishment Democrats. For that, we turn to D.D. Guttenplan. He's the nation's editor-at-large, and he's just returned from Texas, and he wrote the cover story on Texas politics for The Nation. His book, American Radical, The Life and Times of I.F. Stone, was awarded the Sperber Prize for Biography. And his latest book, The Nation, A Biography, is available in print or as an ebook at thenation.com slash ebooks. We reached him today at home in London. Don Guttenplan, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, last time we talked with you here, you had just returned from Jackson, Mississippi, and Chakwe Lumumba. Before that, it was Montana. Now you've been reporting from South Texas, even though you live in London. How how do you do it? I get a lot of uh, <laughs> I get a lot of air miles. <laughs> but the um, the short version of it, uh, to quote the poet, is that something is happening here, and I'm trying to figure out what it is. <laughs> you know, Chakwe Lumumba said he wants to make Jackson, Mississippi, the most radical city in the country. And meanwhile, in Texas, one of the reddest of red states, you have this rising crop of uh, young radicals who are unabashed about their politics and who are making serious challenges to the Democratic establishment. Well, the Democratic establishment in Texas certainly has had a terrible decade 
Hillary was a disaster in Texas. She got, I think it was 43% of the vote. Republicans hold all the statewide offices. We're told the reason for that is because Texas voters are pro-gun and anti-immigrant and anti-regulation. We're told that Texas is not ready for Medicare for all or a $15 minimum wage or free college tuition. You just got back from Texas. How much of that is true? Well, almost none of that is true, and you don't have to take my word for it. Stan Greenberg has just published a poll, which has been widely commented on, pointing out that most Texans support stronger gun control, support expanded health care, and are even in favor of legalizing marijuana. So the stereotype that you and I, I must confess, had until a few weeks ago is is uh, out of date. And you have some firsthand evidence about this from a congressional district way down in the southwest corner of Texas along the Rio Grande, currently a Republican district, uh, where there's a interesting guy won the first round of the primaries named uh, Rich Trevino. Have I got that right? It's Rick Trevino. And yeah, Rick's district is bigger than the state of Illinois, or for that matter, bigger than the state of New York. It's one of the biggest districts in the country. Uh, he ran a, in the primary against a hand-picked candidate uh, sponsored by the Castro brothers, you know, Joaquin and his brother, who basically run politics in San Antonio, which is at one side of the district. The other side of the district stretches almost to El Paso and then south along the Rio Grande. So it's 58,000 square miles. And uh, Rick was a high school history teacher who had been a Bernie delegate in Philadelphia, uh, cashed in his pension, quit his job, and with the, I think, $18,000 he got from his pension, uh, bankrolled a candidacy which got him into the runoff against somebody who he, he finished second to against Gene Ortiz Jones, who spent a million dollars coming in first, and he spent about $40,000 coming in second. And what were the political issues between those two uh, candidates? Well, the political issues in the district are America's military misadventures, the lack of health care, the fact that most people's wages still haven't caught up with their expenses, you know, the, the economy that continues to cause pain for a lot of Americans. And I think what, what made Rick interesting is that he says, I'm not a liberal, I'm a lefty. He's an unabashed radical, uh, and he, he is running a real shoestring campaign, and yet he managed to outrun people who were much better funded and much better connected. Well, what the establishment folks say about situations like this is that the weaker Democrats should get out, and they define weaker mostly as meaning they have less money, that money talks, uh, to quote, money doesn't talk, it shouts in politics especially, and let the better-funded Democrats, you know, have a chance to win, and, and these insurgent populist candidates running on shoestring budgets are simply going to lose the seat to a Republican. What What is your... Well, one of the other... One of the other races I went to look at is in the 7th District in Texas, uh, where the centrist Democrats not only said that, they dumped a whole opposition research dossier on Laura Moser, who was running in that district in the primary. Uh, and despite dumping the dossier on her, she's in the runoff uh, against Lizzie Pinnell Fletcher, who was the anointed candidate of the DCCC and also of Emily's list, even though there isn't 
a wit's difference between these two women on on women's issues, health care, abortion, etc. Um, and I think it's also interesting to look at there are races in the country, I don't have them on the top of my head, where the, where the more left candidate actually raised more money because the, the fiction that you've got to be corporate friendly to raise money has been, was exploded by Howard Dean in 2004. I mean, we've known for a long time that Democrats don't have to suck up to corporate donors in order to run realistic campaigns. It's a choice some of them do, but you can raise money on the other side. It's harder, but you can do it. And yet, when, when you have a, an insurgent candidate who raises that kind of money, the centrists never say to the, to the centrist candidate, you know, kid, it's not your night. <laughs> they never say that. The person in Texas among the insurgent Democrats who everybody has heard of is Beto O'Rourke, who raised a lot of money. He is the hope of the Democrats to take the Senate seat away from the horrible Ted Cruz, and he made national headlines the quarter that he actually raised more money than the horrible Ted Cruz. Everybody says Beto is charismatic and young and appealing and speaks fluent Spanish. I've had a hard time figuring out exactly what are Beto O'Rourke's politics. Uh, I wonder if you can help. Well, I don't think that's an accident. <laughs> I spoke to Beto O'Rourke, and I can personally attest to the fact that he is charming on the telephone. Uh, and I've spoken to a lot of his supporters as I, as I drove across Texas. Um, and I think what's interesting about Beto and the thing, if you look at his pictures, he, he, he does have an uncanny physical resemblance to young Bobby Kennedy, the, the Bobby Kennedy who was John F. Kennedy's attorney general. You know, he's got the buck teeth and the thatch of hair and the ready grin, and he's also very thin, um, which, of course, John F. Kennedy wasn't. But the thing about him that reminds me uncannily of Bobby Kennedy was the fact that Bobby Kennedy was, if you'll recall, somebody who was beloved by Mayor Daley and the Daley machine in Chicago and was also beloved by Cesar Chavez yeah. uh, and Dolores Huerta. And, you know, there was this ability that Bobby had without appearing completely calculating about it to, uh, to, to have it both ways, to appeal to constituencies who in fact hate each other. And I saw a bit of that uh, with better work in Texas. I mean, I talked to people who really, really don't like corporate Democrats and who love Beto, and then I talked to people who are corporate Democrats and who love Beto. Um, <laughs> and it's also interesting that, you know, he was a Hillary Clinton superdelegate in 2016, and yet he's come out for Medicare for All. And if there's any litmus test that separates the Bernie Krat sheep from the corporate goats, it's Medicare for All. Uh, and I think the fact that Beto has come out for it full-throatedly is interesting. You know, we're not supposed to punditize here, but I wonder if you think Beto has a chance. Well, you know, the um, one of the Texas newspapers said, if you're going to bet on Beto, get odds. And I think <laughs> okay. that's probably reasonable advice. Okay. He's still a long shot, but, you know, to the extent that money talks, he's outraised Ted Cruz. And also, a point about Ted Cruz that a lot of people have forgotten is that Ted Cruz lost the Republican primary in, in his first and only competitive race. He was, a, he was a Tea Party challenger who came in second, like some of the people I'm writing about from the left, who squeaked into a runoff, and then he just out-organized his opponent in the runoff. 
he hasn't faced a really competitive race since then. So it's going to be fascinating to watch what happens with O'Rourke and Cruz when they're actually competing against each other, because, of course, Beto has no significant primary opposition. My understanding of Texas politics is quite simple, and that's that the Democrats' big problem, aside from gerrymandering and vote suppression, is turnout. Latinos don't vote in Texas the way they do in California. That's because, basically, they don't have a labor movement led by Latinos that focuses on elections. And the basic question to people who think about it that way is, What's going to change that situation? Uh, Texas is certainly not going to get a vibrant Latino labor movement since it's an open shop state. Exciting candidates would help. And I just wonder, is your sense that is Beto exciting enough to increase turnout significantly? Are the Castro twins capable of, uh, of doing this? The Castro twins are not capable of doing this, not because they're not both reasonably charismatic, but because they don't really have anything to offer people to change their lives. I mean, you know, this is the, this is the offer that Hillary Clinton made, which is that America is already great. We don't really need to change very much. And, you know, it, it really annoys people, if not infuriates them, when, when they know from their own lives that that's not the case. I, I think that whether it happens this year or in a future year, I do think that Rick Trevino is a kind of candidate who can excite not just Hispanic voters in, in Texas, but also uh, progressive and populist voters in Texas. And he's running in a district that's 70% Hispanic, but of course the voting population is not 70% Hispanic. So, you know, that in a sense is what's going to make the difference for him. If he can excite Hispanic voters, then he really has a chance. If not, not. The other thing to say is that, you know, Texas is not a Republican state, as they say. It's a Democratic state with a turnout problem. Yeah. And a large part of that, though, is not just the lack of a Hispanic-led labor movement, but gerrymandering. I mean, if, if you've been voting for years and nothing changes because your district is so gerrymandered that wherever you are, you're diluted by, you know, literally thousands of square miles of white rural Texas voters, you know, you begin to think it's not worth the bother. Don Guttenplan, his report, Texas Showdown, Inside the Battle for the Democratic Party, is the cover story in the new issue of The Nation. You can read it now at thenation.com. Thank you, Don. It's always great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of the show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want to trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.